Today's scripture reading comes to us from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. morning good morning there we go um please know that i do recognize and i uh, especially say this to my brother jake who i haven't gotten to talk to in person yet uh i recognize that i'm very pampered this sunday to be in the shade and jake was dealing with the heat on him last week and the cicada course which was much louder than what it is right now last week. So brother, I'm sure you got a blessing from your long suffering uh, in preaching the word last week, um, but I'm thankful for shade and to be here with you. It's a gift uh, to preach, to bring the word uh, to you by God's grace. Um, I have uh, loved sports almost my whole life. I especially remember starting to really get into sports probably around the age of 8, 9, 10, 11 in there. Uh, so I ended up liking Barry Sanders a lot because he came on the scene around the time I started liking sports. And um, some of you are like, who is Barry Sanders? Um, anyways, he was awesome uh, in football. In baseball, the Reds won the World Series. I'm from Cincinnati originally. They won the World Series when I was like 11 years old. So it was like, okay, that's going to solidify me as a Reds fan, right, even more. 
Um, and with baseball, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but I had I, somebody said some things about baseball that changed the way I looked at baseball forever. It kind of changed my whole paradigm. It's how I approached it, thought about it, watched it. Somebody was saying things like, it is extremely difficult to hit a baseball when it's coming at you at 80, 90, 100 miles per hour. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised when uh, what it takes to keep your place on a team is you only have to be successful like one in every five times or four times you come to the plate. I mean, because we look at a batting average that's a 250 batting average, and that means that person is successful at hitting the ball one in every four times. And in most other professions, if you're successful one in every four times, you're gone, right? But this is seen as like a good thing in baseball. And man, if you hit the ball one in every three times, you're going to be an all-star. And if you do that over a career, you're going to be a surefire Hall of Famer. And that changed the way I looked at baseball. For, like, it just helped me to say, man, difficult, baseball is a difficult sport. Pitchers have the advantage. Hitters, it's hard to hit a baseball. And that was shift, you know, shifted my paradigm altogether about how I, I thought about baseball, approached it, watched it, everything. And a question that, that I want to ask you right now, and that's baseball's a light thing, right? It's a light subject. It's not a weighty subject of life, although some of you might be like, I oppose that statement right there. Baseball is a weighty thing of life. No, it's not. Um, but here's the thing. I want you to, to just think, have you, do you remember a time when so you heard something, someone shared something with you, and it totally changed your paradigm of how you viewed it. Even a, a weighty thing, a heavier issue of life, that someone speaking into that, boy, it just helped you to go forward in that. And maybe you took something more seriously, or maybe it encouraged you in that subject area. I feel that way about this James passage this morning. There are two or three subjects in this passage that this specifically, this passage in James has changed the way I approach them. And it impacts the way I talk to the Lord about them, the way I pray about them, the way I talk to other people about them. And my prayer is that the Lord will do the same in all of us this morning. Pray that there will be something in this passage that changes the way you approach it, the way you interact with the Lord about it and interact with others. So let me pray right now. Lord Jesus, uh, we uh, are humbly asking you uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit to help us just take uh, another step in growing in our love for you growing in our love for others, in our zeal for your gospel, in our understanding of your grace and mercy to us, I pray uh, for that step uh, this morning. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the witness of uh, you over the span of our lives, 
how you're caring for us and guiding us. So Lord, help us just to be a part of one, one more step, one more time in growing in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember in the book of James, uh, we've been challenged from the very beginning to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a sense in which this passage just falls right in line with testing of our faith. So there's going to be aspects of how close we are to God that's going to come up in this passage. Just like we have, like in James 3, uh, several weeks ago, we were challenged with our tongues and the testing of our faith and how we're using our tongues and, and the heart issues that are inside of us that make us say certain things with our tongues, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is going to challenge us on heart issues and then how it plays out in our lives as well. So we ended chapter three and boy, it was kind of like this uh, good ending. You know, it talks about the wisdom of above from above. It's pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Hey, that's a good way to go out on chapter three. Right. That's that's some good stuff. And then chapter four is like just bringing the hammer down on us with quarrels and fights. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? So a harsh transition from the peace to quarrels and fights. And James starts with two questions for us. And whenever we see a question in the scriptures that's posed to the readers, we can't just like read over. I mean, we're meant to pause with that question as well. What does cause quarrels and fights among us? Would we be able to answer that question? I think that some of us would have our opinions about why that is. Would we be reflective on the quarrels and fights we're a part of? What causes those? Or would we be more, you know, thinking about that quarrel and fight we saw in the news the other day? And we'd be kind of applying it to the rest of the world, but not necessarily thinking about ourselves. We'd try to answer it, right? And then James starts to diagnose after the first question, he starts to diagnose it by asking another question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So with that question, he goes a little bit deeper to say, "Okay, consider this as part of why you might be having quarrels and fights in your life. Passions are at war within us. Then he starts to get into the specifics of answering. And as we look at these answers, we can ask ourselves, do we agree? Do we agree with his diagnosis? So he says, we, uh, you, uh, sorry, you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So he, he goes into three reasons why there's this war of passions inside of us. And the first one, he says, we desire and do not have, so we murder. And we know murder is the intentional killing of someone physically. But somehow he's connecting the fact that we would murder someone with a passion that's at war within us. This is why people murder. They want something, but they can't have it. Now, if you, if you go on um, websites or reading books about motive theory and stuff like that with the criminal justice system, a lot of times they, they summarize motive for murder with this list of four L words. Lust, love, loathing, and loot. So those four L words summarize for them, okay, we're going to try to pinpoint what the motive was on why somebody murdered somebody. They usually fall in one of those four categories. Lust, love, loathing, and loot. That covers a lot. A desire that you can't have. Now, we're not going to go into details about each of those. But I would say that if you start to think about things the way God thinks about it, it's not just the outward action of murder, but the inward passionate war within us. If we start to think, okay, what's the passion inside of us that would lead us to do something like murder? Those are some good ways to summarize it. But it's kind of funny, like, why would James go all the way to murder? Like, a lot of times we'll read that and we'll just kind of be like, whoa, James, you know, like, were you writing to this church where all these people were killing each other or something like that? And it may, it may have been the case that somebody was murdered in the church. And he was speaking specifically to that. We don't know. But... We don't want to just discount that either. Just because he brings up the extreme of murder that we automatically don't see ourselves in. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not murdering anybody. We don't want to discount that. Well, why don't we want to discount it? Well, because Jesus himself actually doesn't discount when he talks about murder in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus ties together murder and anger. So he says in uh, 5, 21 and 22 of Matthew, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus challenges that outward action that everybody was kind of saying, well, as long as I don't murder anybody, I'm good. Like that was the teaching, you know. The outward stuff that can happen. Well, I'm good as long as I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not, you know, committing adultery. He goes through that whole list of all these very outward, worst case scenario kinds of things. And as long as we stay away from those, we're going to be right with God. But Jesus challenges each one of those things and kind of goes deeper into the heart of the law of God, really, in the Sermon on the Mount. To where he says, no, it's not just about 
the outward act of murder, but it's actually about what's going on in our hearts. So I think we can make that connection here. That we don't want to fall into ungodly anger towards one another. Because it's the ungodly anger that can lead to other things, can lead to the outward stuff. So it's not just about that outward action. And that there's some kind of inner war of passions, right, with us that would lead to the murder. And if you think about it, when we get angry with people, a lot of times it's because they're getting in the way of a desire that we have. We want something. And that person is in the way of what we want. So we get angry with them. And in that moment, just think about this, especially in light of Jesus's connection to anger. In a way, it's like we wish that person didn't exist in that moment. We want them out of the way so that we can have the desire that we want. So. In a way, our ungodly anger towards people on the inside, we want to have that person out of the way. Which then, it can make sense then why it would get to a point of murder. Get that person out of the way altogether. So this should challenge us here. And to diagnose what's going on inside of us. The next one that he references, coveting. We want something. You covet and cannot obtain. The thing you want, you cannot get it. So you fight and quarrel. We see this with little kids, right? Like, this is the way it comes out in a really easy way. Like, that's my car. You know? And then if the kid, the other kid just kind of like keeps it away like this, you know? And they're kind of trying to go, that's my, and then it just like raises the anger level in the other child. Like, that's mine, wait. You know, we see that play out in a very outward way with kids. Are we no different? Our way of that happening might be a little more polished, maybe. But we're still wanting that thing. And we're getting angry and we're, we're fighting with someone because we want it. And like Michael brought up in the prayer, uh, asking for forgiveness and about whatever we make an idol of. You could have been expecting in, your, in the plans of your day that you wanted to be wanted it to be a quiet morning. Where nothing makes it loud or busy. And we could make an idol out of comfort and ease and quiet. Because then when something gets in the way of our comfort, ease and quiet. We get angry and we fight and quarrel because something was taken from us. So we can make an idol out of anything. So coveting. We, we want something, we murder, we covet, we cannot have it, so we fight and quarrel. And then he says you do not have because you do not ask. So 
Then this third reason is like you have a, a, maybe a desire, but we're going to the wrong place to try to get it. Because this, in, in asking, this is talking about you do not have because you're not coming to God to ask for what you would like. So that's another pitfall we fall into. We have all these desires, but we don't even go to the Lord about them. And there can be some very good desires that we want, some good things, and we never think to go to the Lord to ask for them. And so it just kind of builds up in angst in us when it doesn't happen. And so we're challenged to just ask the Lord, to ask the Lord. But we have, as verse 3 says, we have wrong hearts even though sometimes you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So then our desire, so sometimes we do talk to the Lord about something. But then our desire, the reason why we want it, is wrong. And so we don't receive something because of that reason. We are messed up. I mean, you just think about this list of these things, these wars going on within us. I mean, every one of us can find ourselves in these or all four of them. We're messed up. I mean, thank God for his Holy Spirit that when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he's given us his Holy Spirit to where we're able to love God at all. We're able to do good things at all. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in us, we're a mess constantly. Constantly. So this next verse, or this next little exclamation here in verse 4 to begin verse 4, it might be kind of like, well, what's he talking? You adulterous people. That might be a surprise to us, like, wait a second. I didn't know we were talking about adultery here. We were talking about murder. We were talking about coveting. You know, but now you adulterous people. But it's almost like a summary state, like, you adulterous people. All these issues that I just talked about, you adulterous people. What is up with bringing up adultery? Well, it is really the real problem with all of this. Why we fall into all of this stuff. It's because our hearts are divided ones. If when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we become God's child. A part of his family. We become a worshiper of him. We're meant to worship him and him alone. And that's what every person in God's image is supposed to do. But especially when we come into his family and we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So then when our affections and our desires stray. We're committing adultery against the Lord. Our hearts and our loves are for someone else. That's the exclamation point here. You adulterous people. 
That's the problem. It's idolatry. We have set up a, an idol to worship when we have the Lord and God of the universe who we're in relationship with. We set up an idol and worship that thing. It's an amazing, I mean, this is that paradigm shifting kind of stuff that, that I'm talking about. Like this hit me in a big way of like why I'm having quarrels and fights about anything in my life with anyone. Usually there's going to be some kind of desire that's at war within me and I have made an idol out of something. That it should be a paradigm-shifting way that we look at why we quarrel and fight. In our marriages, with our kids, with our co-workers, we should be examining ourselves here. So in talking about adultery in verses 4 and 5, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So in being adulterous. We end up setting our hearts on worldly things, on a worldly way of living. We are dabbling with the world and the loves of the world. And I think that just uh, I was reading one uh, author about. Um, his name's Gordon Hibbert, and he was writing on this passage of James, and he just gives a great summary statement of this worldliness idea. The worldly person is the self-centered person. Like, that's a way to just cover this whole worldly thing. Like, and it makes sense. If we're self-centered, like, that's, that's the, the heartbeat of the world. That's what it means to follow the course of the world. It's a very self-centered thing. The worldly person is a self-centered person. Instead of being God-centered, other-centered. The worldly person is a self-centered person. So then it would make sense that then we have quarrels and fights among us because we're very self-centered and we're not ready to love others and love the Lord. It makes sense. Now, kind of as a summary statement too, connected to all the subjects in this passage that I thought was really awesome by Hibbert, here's the ultimate trouble with us as Christians. Our circumstances reveal that as believers we are not dealing effectively with the conflicting tendencies of our inner nature. I'll read that again. Our circumstances, so all these hardships, these quarrels, these fights, these things around us that we're dealing with, our circumstances reveal that as believers, we are not dealing effectively with the conflicting tendencies of our inner nature. We're not taking the time to diagnose what's going on inside of us. It's like we just keep living in the self-centeredness, not allowing the Lord to do work on our hearts, not seeking him out to figure out why is this going on? Why am I struggling? A lot of times we're just blaming everything on other people. 
we're not dealing with these things in an effective way together. And that's true of all these things that in this passage. So in verse 6, we have a, a remedy and hope, which I'm thankful for. But he gives more grace. We would be lost without that. <laughs> like, after all this description of trouble and heartache and strife, but he gives more grace. And he especially gives us grace. Now, thankfully, he gives us grace even when we're not seeking it. Anybody ever realize that? You see your life is a mess. You're sinning. You're caught in something. And you still keep experiencing the grace and mercy and abundant gift giving of God. But he gives more grace. But there is a way that we can experience God's grace in an even greater measure. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we seek the Lord humbly, there is a sense in which we will experience his grace more. So that is a remedy and hope in all of this. It's kind of like the middle of this passage a little bit. Now, how do we get humble? Seven through ten is this open call to to repentance and humility. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That, I mean, be wretched and mourn. Kind of makes you laugh. You're like, whoa, James. You know, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Who wants that? Like, what's he talking about here? Well, think about this. If we're living a life where we're not drawing near to God, we're not seeking him humbly, we're not repenting, then there's a way in which we are, we are taking our lives lightly. We are taking the things going on around us lightly. And it may even be leading to us just yucking it up in life, laughing, you know, being silly, and we're not taking things seriously. And if that's the case, those are the kinds of things that are fitting in here, like, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's the double-minded stuff again. A divided heart. Go to the Lord in repentance. Be wretched and mourn and weep. We should be coming before the Lord. Please forgive me for these things. For this way in which I'm loving the world. I'm self-centered. Forgive me for how I've been talking to my spouse like this about this subject. I am so self-centered in this subject. Lord, please help me. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. If, if you're taking these things lightly in life, it's time to turn to the Lord and to be serious. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's connected right back to um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil, 
There's a fight here. There's a fight and a battle against our sin. That's one of the main things of the Christian life, battling against sin to grow closer to the Lord Jesus. And if there's no battle in these areas, we're taking it too lightly. So we want to battle. We're going to go through these last two sections very quickly. They're important for us in the testing of our faith. Um, this first section, after we have the, the exhortation, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He goes right back into to confronting us with other ways in which we're acting like the world. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Anybody ever seen those shirts that people wear sometimes that say, only God can judge me? You ever seen those? It's just right on the front of their shirt. Only God can judge me. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, right? Um, and in a sense, that's true. In a sense, that's true. That as far as salvation things and being right with God, we're each individually judged by God. And that no one can say that any individual is too far from God to be saved. We can't say that about anybody. If we do say that about certain people, if we look in the world and we're like, that person is beyond saving. We need to look at ourselves then. Because like with Paul, we all can say we're the chief of sinners. I mean, at the very least, we could look to Paul and say, Paul, like how many people were observing Paul and being like, that guy's never going to come to know Jesus. He is so far from being saved. No, he's not. Just like we're not. Apart from God's awesome work of the Holy Spirit, we would be too far gone with no hope. So there's a sense in which we don't want to judge people according to that. For sure. If we are putting that kind of judgment on people, Oh, the way that they're acting, they're too far gone. That is an arrogant judgment. And I think that's what we need to focus on with this kind of judging that he's challenging us with, is that we do not want to arrogantly judge people. To say they're too far from saving. But he's speaking specifically to judging in the church. And once again, we want to guard against Arrogant judging. Like, oh gosh, how the, wh like, why are they dealing with that sin? Like, putting some kind of thing on other people, like, what is wrong with them? As if we don't have things that we're struggling with. We don't want to put that kind of judging on people, an arrogant kind of judging. I will, um, commend to you reading in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus's words on judging. I would challenge you, if you want to have a better understanding of judging, go to that. And also go to, I believe, 2 Corinthians, 
where it talks about a specific issue in the church that the Corinthian church was dealing with, uh, where essentially a, a man was having relations with his stepmother. Okay? And there's a whole issue of what it means to judge in the church for the sake of keeping the church pure and all those kinds of things. There's a whole discussion in there. So I commend you those two passage passages uh, on judging. Lastly, um, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So now he's challenging us about, uh, and this is some good wording by Hibbert again. I just, man, he was golden when I was reading and studying for this. I just love some of the stuff he was saying. Um, our closeness with the Lord, our faith is tested by our presumptuous planning and our self-sufficient attitude. That's what this last section is really about. Presumptuous planning and self-sufficient attitude. So we should be challenged here as well. And this really helped me. Like, this was another thing that the Lord just, bam, put on me. And it's like, how many times do I just talk about what I'm doing, what I'm going to be doing, the plans I have? And I just have no thought about, is that really what God is going to do? Is that really what God wants to have happen? And like really having my hands open before the Lord, like, hey, this is what I'm planning on doing. But the Lord might have something else in mind. And this passage specifically just came down on me like, like it's a it's actually a way that I can interact with the Lord in my life more often. Like it's a way I can draw near to God that I make a plan. But I just have that reminder in my prayers so like. Lord, this is only going to happen if you wanted to. It's only going to happen if you wanted to. And that's a sweet thing. Like that's a sweet thing to to go to the Lord and draw near to him about that. So we want to flee from presumptuous planning. And that line, as far as like kind of (laughs) when I was talking to Michael, Michael's phrase about this, he said this next line was like the ultimate burn towards us. (laughs) What is your life for? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's like a burn. Gotcha on that one. You know, Um, and that is true. I mean, there's a sense in which here we go back to humility. What are we like for us to think and plan things as if we're God and just think it's all going to get executed perfectly as if we're God? He's the only one that can do that, right? He's the only one that that's true about. And so who are we? We're just a mist. In the span of eternity. We're like a breath. We're nothing. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So there's a lot of challenges in this chapter here. But I want you to be okay. If you feel convicted about any of these things, go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. 
If you're a believer, you know that the Lord knew about these sins before the foundations of the world. And Christ knew about them even while he was on the cross, before he went to the cross. So we can go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and know that our sins are forgiven. But we should take it seriously, right? But in our struggles as we quarrel with others, struggles with our worldliness and self-centeredness, in our lack of humility, in our arrogantly judging others, and in our presumptuous planning, we have an opportunity to humble ourselves and draw near to the Lord and to grow in our faith. So in these struggles is an opportunity to draw near to the Lord. I'm just going to tell you a story, and I do have permission from my wife to share this story, just so you know, okay? Um, Jody uh, struggles a lot with anxiety over, you know, hardships in our family with our kids, um, health and safety things with our kids, uh, struggles with anxiety uh, in regards to uh, her own health and what's going on with her body at times. And she was having a phone conversation with a friend uh, a while ago and just sharing about that anxiety, some different areas of anxiety. And the friend said, this is, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is something that actually tethers you to God. Like, this can be something that can help you to draw near to God. Like these hardships, these struggles, these anxieties, these are an opportunity. And she said, tether these things tether you to God more. And so now, Jody, you know, by God's grace, more and more, because of that thought, that paradigm shifting conversation at some level, right? She is able to go more freely to God for forgiveness and grace and hope. And it doesn't overwhelm her in the same way, these these anxious thoughts. It doesn't overwhelm her to where then she's like, gosh, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep dealing with this? And in a sweet way, it leads her to draw near to God. So if you're struggling with any of the things in this passage, See it as an opportunity, as a way to draw near to God. Yes, repent of our idolatry. That's the heart of it. But then to put our love and our hope on the ultimate God, on the one who saved us and redeemed us, right? So may that be so. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we have some time to just uh, reflect on these things as we have some time to uh, come to the table soon. And Lord, we thank you for the table. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us of how you planned for your body to be broken and your blood to be spilled in order to redeem your people. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to draw near to you. Help us to humble ourselves. And help us to trust you with you lifting us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.